Just a quick content note about this episode. I try very hard to make this a suitable podcast for all ages, but the nature of the gamebook means there is a certain amount of chat about illegal drugs, both imaginary and real, drug policy and law enforcement, which might not be to everyone's taste. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast where a middle-aged man plays old adventure gamebooks out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode sees us take on The Rings of Kether. This fighting fantasy adventure gamebook was written by Andrew Chapman, with cover art by Terry Oakes and internal illustrations by Nick Spender. It was released by Puffin Books in 1985. You may sense a degree of trepidation in my voice, and that's because we're venturing into futuristic science fiction territory, not a setting that's been a source of great joy in previous episodes, it has to be said. Worse, Andrew Chapman was the author of Space Assassin, which was lacking in quality but blessed with an abundance of outright insanity. So, will this be the space-themed fighting fantasy book that breaks the losing streak and redeems the author in my eyes? Let's dive in and find out. So, there's a certain amount of bookkeeping to get out of the way. This being a science fiction book, we have a spaceship as well as a character. So, my character, Cotter Bonkfellow, and his ship is called the Saucy Actuary. And it's got a weapon strength of 11 and a shield of 10, both those generated by 1d6 plus 6. And my ship is also equipped with two smart missiles, which will destroy anything I shoot them at immediately. For myself, uh, Cotter Bonkfellow has a skill of 10, stamina of 24, a luck of 12. They've got 5,000 Copex in a charging account. I have no idea whether that's a lot or a little, and four energy tablets replacing my beloved provisions, each of which will restore six points of stamina. Uh, There are three types of combat in this book, ship-to-ship and blaster and hand-to-hand combat. Ship-to-ship and blaster combat both work by rolling underneath your skill or weapon strength on 2d6 and doing variable amounts of damage depending on the type of combat and hand-to-hand combat works exactly like it usually does. So I think that's all the bookkeeping out of the way. Before we start, I do just want to mention that the cover art is weirdly hypnotically fascinating. It consists of a, uh, a large man, in every sense of the word, in front of a view screen of some sort that shows an alien landscape, and he looks kind of like Baron Harkonnen out of the David Lynch Dune films, and has on his face uh, an expression of smug, self-satisfied superiority that reminds me of a Tory MP who's just been told he's going to be allowed to announce another round of library closures. He is not an appealing fellow, let's put it like that. So we begin with the mission briefing. The Galactic Federation consists of several hundred civilised worlds, 
all of which are signatories to certain basic federal laws and conventions. This is Star Wars Episode 1 all over again, isn't it? One of these concerns is the suppression of trafficking in certain narcotic drugs. Simply, the export of narcotic drugs from one world to another is illegal. The Federal Police Force has become aware, however, of an extremely large flow of the illicit narcotic Satafil D from the tiny Aleph Signi system. As the individual worlds are supposed to police these matters themselves, there has developed some concern that all is not well with the Aleph Signi administration. Uh, the text is here broken up by a picture of a gun for no very clear reason. With the obvious failure of the local administration to deal with this breach of federal law, your department, Federal Central Vice, has decided to send a Grade 1 investigator, that's you, to locate the source of this drug flow, penetrate the organisation responsible, and then destroy it. Curious minds want to know, is Satophil D, is this kind of like marijuana level of illicit substance? Or is this at a heroin level of illicit substance? Is this thing, is it a drug that's basically more or less fine if used in small doses? Or is it something perniciously addictive that turns you into a violent sociopath? Because my feelings on this mission do, to a certain extent, depend on which of these it is. I mean, my natural instinct is that most drug laws, even in the far future, are aggressive and unhelpful, and that drug taking is best treated as a public health issue rather than a criminal one. But maybe it'll turn out that Satophil D's primary effect is to make you want to be a politician or something equally ghastly. Because of the possible untrustworthiness of the Aleph Signi authorities, you travel to the system incognito, posing as an interstellar travelling salesman with a cargo of exotic off-world fruit, spices and luxuries. Once in the system, you are on your own. Good luck! So we turn over and we get what looks to be the interior of our spacecraft. There's some panels, there's a screen with a planet on. It is very much the bargain basement spaceship control panel interior. Some of these are in capital letters and I'm going to endeavour to highlight through my performance which of the sentences are presented all in capital letters. Five minutes to hyperspace termination! Flashes on the command vidi in front of you. An alarm bell chimes softly through the ship. In a few moments, you will be entering the Aleph Signi system, and if there has been any criminal infiltration into the Galactic Vice Squad, there could be a very hot reception. Four minutes to hyperspace termination! Swivelling in your crash couch, you run a check through your spacecraft's weapon systems. Phasers! Check. Smart missiles! Two. Check. Shields! Check. Pretty hefty stuff for a travelling salesman, though no one's to know unless you have to use it. Until such time, your cover should remain intact. You charge up the conventional drive of your spaceship, raise the anti-spy beam shield and grit your teeth for the stomach-twisting end to hyperspatial travel. Prepare for insertion into real space slash time! The bottom drops out of the spaceship. You follow at some super light speed. Shh! Everything flies back together and is once again, apart from the hangover you seem to have developed in the last moment, back to normal. There, on the screen in front of you, is the Aleph Signi system, the yellow star Aleph Signi, and its single planet, 
Kether. Kether, your cosmonav tells you, is a habitable world, consisting of vast expanses of ocean and, apart from a few scattered islands, only one continental landmass. Circling this world is a small pock-marked moon known locally as Rispin's End. Who is Rispin and which end of him resembled a pock-marked moon, we find ourselves asking. Not visible on your vidi screen, but whose presence you are alerted to by your cosmonav is a vast belt consisting of hundreds of thousands of asteroids. There's a sentence that took me a few goes. Where will you begin your search for the drug runners? At the system's starport on Kether? on the moon, or in the asteroid belt. Now, I'm no expert on the smuggling of illicit substances, or indeed, the transportation of illicit substances. I'm not a substance expert, but I feel like the best place to hide is the asteroid belt, so that's where I'm going to look, because you could hide on any one of 100,000 asteroids. How would anyone ever find you? Yeah, hang on a second. How, am I going to be able to find anything? Oh, I'll have a look. I'm going to have a look. My first idea is always the best. Don't overthink it. You accelerate towards the asteroid belt, your ship's twin fusion drive pushing you along at a steady 3Gs. Suddenly, an alarm goes off and the command screen presents, Warning! Two unidentified vessels approaching from asteroids on intercept course! You push your ship into a slight turn to avoid any possibility of collision, but the two vessels, instead of continuing straight, change direction to remain on a collision course. They are trying to catch you. In fact, they have begun firing their phasers. You will have to fight them. So we have two interceptors. Interceptor 1 and Interceptor 2. Interceptor 1 has a weapon strength of 5 and 3 shields. Interceptor 2 has a weapon strength of 5 and 2 shields. I have to fight them both at the same time. So I'm going to roll some space dice. I have blasted the interceptors out of the sky, out of space, the space sky. Um, so I can either continue to investigate the asteroids or change course and go to Kether instead. Well, I mean, it feels as though I'm on the right track, what with people trying to kill me and all. So I think I will continue along this asteroid approach. The asteroid belt lies some four astronomic units out in a huge ring around LF Cygni. It consists of at least a hundred thousand fair-sized rocks and millions of little ones. Once you reach the outskirts of a small section of the belt, you realise the futility of such a search. It would take a federal astro-survey team with ten ships a good twenty years to explore every rock capable of supporting a base. You head back to Kether. I should have picked up on the subtle clues that going here was a waste of time. In fact, I even correctly identified it was a waste of time, didn't I? And then went and did it anyway. Still, no damage done. You land at Kether's only starport, which is on the continental landmass and only 10 kilometres away from the planet's capital city. Your ship is towed towards its parking space, where, to your dismay, you are boarded by several customs officers looking for contraband. What? Drugs? You ask? They look at you smugly before replying, No. Technology. They search your ship, making a mess everywhere they go, but find nothing illegal, and eventually leave the spacecraft. So it's illegal to transport drugs, but legal to arm your ship with smart missiles if you are a fruit salesman. The future really does have some interesting priorities. So you could ask a few questions around the starport, go to the local law enforcement headquarters and ask for some help, or if you wish to keep a really low profile, find a shady starport canteen in which to conduct a few discreet inquiries. Well, 
I think we grasp that law enforcement in space is just as corrupt as law enforcement on Earth. So we're not going to ask them. Wandering around the starport, going up to people and asking them, do you know where I can find drug smugglers, seems, even by my standards, a bit naive. So I think we'll follow the basic hint and go to a shady starport canteen and make some discreet inquiries. The canteen you find is advertised by a gaudy cryptofluorescent animated sign depicting a large crush-class stellar battleship diving into a foaming glass of undefined liquid. Ah, the speciality of the house. Undefined liquid. The sound effects are deafening, full of fusion motor roars, laser zaps and damn-sized splashes. This looks promising. Entering the premises, you find a joint packed with a drunken flotsam and jetsam. There is hearty laughter, the obligatory fight in the corner, and it's all very, very noisy. A small sign over the bar announces that no aliens are allowed. Even more promising, will you approach one of the barmaids for a tip about who in the bar might be best to approach for a bit of underworld largesse, in quotation marks, or just mingle to see what you can find out? I mean, I hate mingling. I really dislike mingling. So if I can get a tip from the barmaid, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because watching me try and make polite conversation is just an exercise in despair. So yeah, we'll have a go at the barmaid. Hi there, you shout at a young bar wench. I'm new in town and I'm sort of looking for somebody who can help a young and scrupulous type of person like me get along without having to, you know, work in a regular way, see? Wow, I do talk almost exactly like that. Oh yeah, she shouts back disdainfully. What do you do, zero head? You perform a quick bit of thinking here. What's absolutely essential for a drug-producing outfit? I'm a chemist. I make funny little crystals for people to stick in their bloodstreams, you yell. She blinks at you a bit, obviously thinking without seeing you. Hiking up her skirt, she reveals a garter purse. Slapping it, she says, 500 kopecks, jerk. Will you pay her or not? If you decide not to pay her, you'll just have to mingle with the throng. Well, given that apparently my idea of being undercover is to wander up to people and say... Boy, howdy, I'm a big old criminal. Um, I can't imagine my mingling is going to go any better, so I'm going to have to take the uh, the financial hit, reducing me to 4,500 kopecks. Again, not having any clue whether this is the price of a pint or the price of a luxury sedan. I'm really uh, making it difficult to, to work out what kind of deal this is, so I will pay her. You part with your 500 the barmaid pulls you close and points out two people at separate tables. One is a pale, drawn-looking man, alone with his beer. The other is a fat, middle-aged woman playing cards with six or seven men. Which will you approach, the man or the woman? Uh, well, the man looks down on his luck. And as someone who's perpetually down on his luck, I feel a distinct kinship with him, so I'm going to go and approach the man rather than the uh, middle-aged woman enjoying her game of chance. So... Manwards. It does occur to me that uh, pretending to be a criminal by claiming that I know how to make drugs rather than, for example, saying I'm a fruit salesman with a ship that could smuggle lots of drugs. You know, always try and make the lie as close to the truth as you can. Why would you invent a second cover for yourself? The man does not look at all surprised when you join him. In fact, there seems to be a certain recognition in his eyes. You talk to him for a while about how 
You're an off-world travelling salesman. Okay, now we're going back to it. Before mentioning that you'd be interested in expanding your operations to cover perhaps a few illicit items, he laughs at you. (laughs) You're not a salesman. (laughs) You're a narc. This, of course, startles you slightly. He's quick to reassure you. Leaning closer, he whispers, We can't talk here. Meet me in two hours at the Hotel Miramar, room 1201. He then drains his glass, rises and walks from the canteen. You decide to meet him. Well, we seem to be getting along all right so far. It is night. The Hotel Miramar is a dive. The elevator is out of order. There is no heating. Arriving at the 12th floor after running up the stairs, you lean for a moment in the doorway to catch your breath. The door to 1201, which is just next to you, opens. A shifty-looking character putting something in his jacket pocket steps out. He looks a bit surprised at seeing you. He waits impatiently by the elevator until, realising that it's out of order, he heads for the stairs and clatters off down towards street level. He must have walked up the stairs. He must know that the elevator's out of order, unless the drugs that he's taking really do mess with his short-term memory, which I guess could be a possibility. Do we want to enter 1201 or follow the man who just left? Oh, I'm feeling like a proper gumshoe at this point. Choice of leads. Um, I'm going to keep my original appointment on the grounds that I'm pretty sure the shifty looking character was buying drugs. So I imagine I'm just going to go and watch him take drugs, which strikes me as not likely to be particularly entertaining or productive. And I mean, I, I assume so. Who knows? Maybe the uh, sato-filled deer is some kind of like anti-cocaine that makes you personable and easy to be in a room with, but uh, I doubt it. You tap gently on the door. No answer. You tap again. A groan comes from within. You try the door, but it's locked. The seconds are ticking away. The ever more distant sound of steps going down can still be heard. Will you force your way into the room or go in pursuit of the man who just went down the stairs? Oh, this is a good choice, isn't it? I mean, it sounds as though maybe I was doing the gentleman a disservice because it sounds as though he wasn't so much buying drugs as maybe doing a murder. I've got to find out what he's done, though. I'm going to force my way into the room. I'm going to force my way into the room. Hopefully the guy will be able to give me some sort of clue before he expires. Under a hefty shoulder, the door collapses. Inside, on the floor, in a pool of blood, is the man you were supposed to meet. Shot. His eyes open. And he crooks a finger at you in an attempt to call you over. Beware, he whispers when you are closer. Beware of Zira, Gross and uh, Blaster. He expires. Your last word's too much for him. You search his body and find a wallet and a letter. The wallet identifies the man as being Arthur Flange, of no fixed address. That's the sort of name I'd come up with. The letter is from a friend or acquaintance of his. It reads, Dear Arthur, re our plans. Z doesn't suspect yet. We must work out the final details. Meet me at the Cafe Heroes of the Federation on Thursday at 9am. Clive Taurus. Will you go to meet Clive tomorrow in place of Arthur? Go to the City Central Library to look up this Zero Gross that Arthur mentioned. Her name might be raised in a case list somewhere. Should probably be trying to do more American accents to go with a kind of hard-boiled vibe. I'm sure there's hard-bitten detectives in Yorkshire. I'm going to go to the library because I love libraries, so let's go there. The city central library is an enormous complex housing millions of volumes of vidis, microfilms and even a few books. 
It is almost devoid of human life when you arrive. There is no organic staff, and most subscribers get the information or volumes they want sent to them by cable. You seat yourself at a terminal marked FOR PUBLIC USE ONLY! Will you start by looking through old vidi news for something on local organised crime, or look up some government release statistics instead? Um, let's have a look at the news and get a sort of sense. We know that the government is probably corrupt, and the media is probably corrupt as well, because that's what medias are, but I feel like you're probably going to get slightly better information from a news outlet rather than a corrupt government source so news it is after several hours scanning the previous several years daily news release and case lists it becomes evident that there is very little to find no articles at all on organized manufacturer or dealing of drugs and only one tiny snippet under a case list released four years ago which reads central criminal court three state versus z gross and b Blaster Babbitt, Blaster being in quotation marks, before Justice Zark. Charge. Trafficking in illicit organic materials. Satofield D. Sitting at 10am. After that, there is nothing. No record of a conviction. Nothing. You look them up in the Vidiphone directory and find an address for B. Babbitt, but nothing for Z. Gross. Will you go and look over B. Babbitt's dress or go to the state computer file to see if anything about these two can be uncovered? Uh, well, more information. More information is always good. I love information. So we're going to go straight for the state computer file centre. The state computer file centre is a squat, ugly rectangle of concrete surrounded by a few kilometres of razor wire. A large metal sign wired to one of the fences flaps lazily in the wind. Trespassers prosecuted! There is, however, a public entrance into a tiny pillbox set away from the main building. You enter this building and notice to your dismay yet another large sign. Only those files which are more than 100 years old will be released for public perusal. Seems as though you're going to have to resort to a felony to get the information you want. Will you try bribery or breaking and entering? Ah, yes. Classic police officer. It's fine for me to break the law because I'm upholding the law. If a police officer does it, it doesn't count as a crime. Um, we'll try bribery. I don't, wouldn't trust myself to break and enter a Cadbury's cream egg, quite honestly. So, uh, yeah, we'll go straight for bribery. You approach the receptionist, a seemingly pleasant fellow with pince-nez. I'd like to look at a few files, if I may. Oh, yes, he says, greedily rubbing his hands together. What century would you like, hmm? No, this century, just the last few years, actually, you say nonchalantly. It begins to bob up and down in agitation. Ah, uh, no. I'm, I'm afraid we can't let you see them. Do you want to hold out 1,000 kopecks under his nose, or 2,000? And what else am I going to be spending my kopecks on? I'm just going to go big. I'm going to go big. I'm going to offer him a mega bribe of 2,000 kopecks. Surely enough to go large on a fast food meal. Well, in that case, he says, taking the money from your hands, I might be able to let you sit at this terminal here for a few minutes. He indicates a video link behind the reception counter. But you must be quick. My supervisor could return at any moment and then, alas, I would have to denounce you. He smiles. My neck or yours. You sit at the terminal and begin looking through the centre's confidential files. I'd just like to apologise to the people of America for my horrendous butchering of 
of their accent. I'm not even sure which bit of America I was trying to be from. I mean, it's the future. Accents have probably got really weird. Anyway. Consulting the file directory on the terminal reveals that you can only have access to transport files. Nothing personal, legal, or even remotely criminal. Well, this was money well spent. So you have a quick look through the transport files and notice almost immediately that large sections are missing from the air traffic records. Days, weeks, maybe more. There's either been some enormous bureaucratic incompetence or, as seems more and more likely, a cover-up. What could they be hiding? Flights from certain locations? You could be discovered at any moment. Will you continue to search through the files? Or go in search of the person most likely to be responsible for the missing files, the Chief of Air Traffic Control? I will take a powder and go and have a look for the Chief of Air Traffic Control. There's an old saying, never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. But when it comes to government bureaucracies, I think it's probably safe to assume both malice and incompetence. Let's go and see what this Chief of Air Traffic Control is like. You go to the main heliport where the air traffic chief works. Now, do you want to follow him home from work to confront him or try and get into his office when he's not there? I'm, I'm hungry for a bit of action. I'm going to go follow him home from work and confront him. At the heliport, there is a large display of holographs headed with the slogan, We have your comfort and safety in mind! The holographs are of all the staff involved in the running of the port. There are, you notice, two chiefs of air traffic. You make a note of what their smiling countenances look like. Hire a ground car and wait in the staff car park. After a few hours, one of the chiefs emerges from the port, climbs into a ground car and drives off. You follow him home. When you approach him, will you act tough to extract the necessary information or will you act friendly? I feel I need to brace somebody. I can't just be handing out money to every Tom, Dick and Harry. So we're going to act tough. We're going to give him the old uh, third degree, yeah. Treat him to a bit of chin music if he's uh, going to come the wise guy with the likes of me. You withdraw your blaster from its holster, stick the barrel in his face and push him around. He slams against a wall and slides to the floor. I am a federal narcotics investigator, and I hear, Mr. Air Traffic Controller, that you've got something to hide. Out with it. Everything you know, you say in an icy voice. Test your luck. So I've got a luck of 12, so I will automatically be successful. Gets me to a luck of 11. Let's see if he's going to canary. See, I know all the tough guys slang. Canary like a pigeon. A stool pigeon. He looks suitably frightened. It's the customs officer. He makes me do it. Don't send me to jail, please, please, he pleads. You slap him in the face. Makes you do what? Come on, you're in very big trouble, mister. He, he makes me destroy the records for certain flights. Which flights? You snap. From, from the islands. Which islands in particular, you ask, simulating rage and pounding him against the wall. I I don't know, he cries. We only pick them up just before they, they reach the coast. He collapses in a snivelling heap. When you start really slapping him around to see if he's hiding anything or ease off a little to show him that you're human. Well, we've given him the, uh, the tough guy, given him the stick. Now maybe it's time for a little bit of the carrot, so... I'm going to ease off of it. Please don't send me to jail, he pleads. I, I've told you everything. 
What about the customs officer's name, you ask? Zach, Zach Kalensus, he says. He, he pays me to do it, but I, I won't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah, you say. Onwards, so Zach Kalensus. I should probably write that down, given my memory. Probably should have written down some of the other various names that we were given. There was a Mr. Gross, wasn't there? And a guy whose middle name was apparently Blaster. Um, Babbitt? Blaster Babbitt? Something like that. Anyway. Today, in fact, he continues, some stuff arrived and will probably go through customs tomorrow. Well, you don't know exactly where the stuff is coming from, so there's no point in flying out to the islands yet. So, will you pay customs a visit on the morrow? Or try to find someone else in the space industry who might know about illegal traffic? I will say that the choices in this do feel very consequential. They've got a real heft to them, and they make sense. Admittedly, it'd be nice to be able to go back and uh, revisit some of the previous leads that uh, that we've ignored. But, you know, the adventure game book, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Let's go and stake out customs and see if we can spot the contraband coming in, and then we'll be able to work out where that person came from, and that will then get us to the island we need, I think. Time to decide your strategy regarding the customs officials. You could approach a customs officer and either threaten him for information, or if you're willing to spend at least 2,000 kopecks, you could try bribery. Alternatively, you could hide in the customs building in the hopes of catching them in an illegal act. I mean, the last one is clearly the stupidest, but I've spent quite a bit of cash already. I've already, I think, exhausted my tough guy credentials, so I am going to hide in the customs building in the hope of catching them in an illegal act. Will you secrete yourself away in the passenger arrivals section or in the freight depot? I mean, they'll be coming in by freight, I assume. I mean, I don't really know how big a dose of Satofield D is. Is it like tiny little tablets that you could sort of easily smuggle in in a body cavity? Or is it, you know, something the size of a T-bone steak? We'll go for the freight depot, I think. I feel as though that's going to be where the smuggling action is. The freight depot is quite enormous, but you find a row of lockers in which you can hide and still get a good view of any comings and goings. You share a locker with a couple of greatcoats and a pinup. The depot can be seen through a few ventilation slots. After a short while, you notice, to your dismay, a khaki-clad security officer armed with a gigantic blaster checking your row of lockers. He opens each one in turn slowly approaching the one you are hiding in. That's got to be a rubbish job. Just checking the lockers in case people are hiding in them. Um, do you want to try and move from your locker without being seen? Or stay where you are, hide behind a coat and hope he doesn't find you. I mean, the second one is so stupid, I'm going to have to do it. Yeah, yeah we're going to just hide behind a coat, pretending to be, I don't know, a mannequin of some sort that someone's hung their coat on. The guard moves down the row of lockers, finally reaching yours. He puts his hand on the latch. Hey, hurry, a voice within the depot cries. Time for a beer, old buddy. Is that so? Says the security guard, looking at his watch. Guess it is, too. Leaving your locker, he strolls off in the direction of his friend. Safe. A few hours pass with little happening. Then a helijet arrives with a one-ton cargo of small, heavy-duty plastic boxes. They are loaded onto an electric dray and wheeled over to where three customs officers are waiting to inspect it. One of them opens a box. Ah, this is the stuff, he says. What? says another. You know, Satterfield D, dope, stuff, dust, 
Oh, anything to declare? He says to the helijet pilot. No, of course not. Very good, says the customs official. Past inspected. He stamps the boxes with a large red sign saying, Past customs for export. How blatant can they get in their contempt for the law? Time to put an end to this. You burst out of the locker, drawing your blaster as you go. Freeze, you cry, aiming your gun at the pilot's head. They keep very, very still. You utter a few threats concerning their fates. If they don't tell you who is running this racket, they spill the beans. The isosceles tower, says one customs official. In the city, says another. Top floor, says the last. And don't forget the communication satellite in the L-16 orbit, gasps the helijet pilot. No, we won't, say the others. After imprisoning these very guilty felons aboard your spacecraft, will you go to the isosceles tower or check out the communications satellite? I'm really hoping that there is a picture of the isosceles tower and it's rectangular. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go purely in the the vague hope that I'm going to see something that makes the name entirely inappropriate. So in the hope that I'm going to witness, boo, no picture. You hire a helijet and land among the other helijets on the pad on top of the fifty-story isosceles tower. On the fiftieth floor, you find the office you want. Z Gross and Associates Import Slash Export. Surprisingly, the door to this office is unlocked. In fact, a jar. You draw your blaster and slowly push the door open with a toe. You are faced by the wood panel wall of a corridor leading to the left and right. There is no sound whatsoever. Do you want to follow the wall to the left or the right? Well, this is the first binary choice we've had to make. Just a straight left-right choice. And we're already a good 40-odd minutes into the recording. And that's pretty cool. But anyway, regardless, we all know... But when we get the binary choice, we always go left first. The corridor opens out into a spacious open plan office. There are some 15 desks spread about, computer links, and even a few document files. It gives the impression of having been very hastily stripped and deserted. Files are spilled on the floor, magnetic memory tapes lie everywhere, and one of the desks is even, even tipped on its side. Wow, some rough customers indeed. Perhaps they were expecting a whole bevy of feds to arrive. Wonder who tipped them off. Could have been any of the people I've either bribed or threatened, really, couldn't it? Do you want to search through some of the files to see if any sense can be made of this mess, or do you want to continue through the office? Let's have a quick gander. You never know, they might have missed something in their haste. And with drug smugglers, there's always the possibility that they are on drugs whilst attempting to cover their tracks. You pick a few files from the floor and seat yourself behind a computer vidilink. Roll two dice. Is it higher or equal to your skill or less than your skill? Three. That is less than my skill. The files are useless, but the vidilink, once you work out how to turn it on, is a gold mine. It flashes up one message continually. Attention all staff, the feds are on to us, so destroy all files, including this message. Rendezvous Paradise, 3416-42 West, 160001 North, and 2130. Be efficient. Zera, Gross, and Blaster, Babbitt. Good oh. Yep, you've got to admire the criminal genius of um, signing <laughs> your functional 
confession to wrongdoing. Later, after you have left the office, it turns out that the coordinates are those of a tiny island some 4,000 kilometres off the coast of the mainland onwards. When I've played through this for the recording, I'm going to go back. I'm really interested in how this is actually constructed. Is it going to be one of those cases where all roads sort of lead to this island? Or is there some kind of alternate pathway you can take that leads you to explore it? In a different way, I feel as though it's probably going to be multiple branching paths that lead relatively inexorably to this tiny island, but I could be wrong. Oh, got the first picture for a while, and it's of a helijet landing place, which appears to be on a very, very basically sketched-in island with what look like, I guess, sort of palm trees, but alien palm trees. It's not great. You hire a long-range helijet and fly out to the tiny vegetation-covered island. As you circle over it, you spot a large clearing containing a launch pad for shuttles, two landing bays for helijets, and an anti-grav dray. One of the helijet bays is occupied. You land your aircraft in the other bay and climb out. Now that you are closer, you can see the three ramps spaced equally around the helijet bays descend into the ground. Two of the ramps end in quite ordinary-looking entrances, while the third finishes in a large freight door. Do you want to go on through one of the ordinary entrances? The freight door... Freight door turns out to be surprisingly difficult to say out loud. Or do you want to take a look at the anti-grav dray? Well, I'm going to look at the anti-grav dray, because I feel like it might be stacked with drugs. The anti-grav dray is a massive grey device about the size of two helijets put end to end. It floats a metre off the ground. You could attempt to drive it into and through the freight door to give whatever might be waiting behind it a nasty shock. Or, if this doesn't appeal, you could leave the dray and enter on foot one of the lesser entrances or the freight entrance. I mean, which among us has the heart to pass up the opportunity to smash through a freight door? in an anti-grav dray. I mean, that feels like proper Sweeney action. Something worried about how quickly I've become used to the idea that I'm entitled to commit vast amounts of property damage and beat people up in the furtherance of this government requirement to stop people getting high. The drive turbines in the dray whine into life. You steer the clumsy machine towards the freight door and push the throttle forward. It roars and accelerates at quite a frightening pace down the ramp and into the doors. They cave in. When you finally come to a rest, you find that the dray has fortuitously crushed four brutish-looking guards against the stacks of heavy-duty plastic containers they were tending. You dismount to have a look. So, add four murders to the list of things that I consider to be perfectly okay in the line of duty. The plastic containers are full of Satterfill D. Looks like they are getting ready to ship it out to the mainland. In one of the corners of the room you discover the curled up body of a man, obviously killed by the teeth of a rather savage beast, or at the hands of a skilled torturer. With all the fracas you have recently caused in this room, other guards may be coming. Every once in a while, the author has a bizarre tendency to undercut the hard-boiled tone by the use of words like fracar and on the morrow. Will you search this man to try and discover why he was killed, or just leave? I feel like I should search him. The man has no identification on him, no vendetta marks or anything, in fact, which could give you information. You can only determine the cause of death, loss of blood. In one of his hands, however, he holds four energy tablets. 
Wow, taking my total up to eight. You leave the room. You exit the room into a corridor. Quality filler section there. The corridor leads you to an octagonal room. Standing in the centre, contemplating you with at least four of its seven electronic sensors, is a chrome and silver robot, obviously of alien design and manufacture. Welcome! It sighs, rising up on its seven articulated legs and extending a few antennae and microwave sensors in your direction. And then it continues. Red I am, the heart of a scorpion, yet not of arachnia at all. Pincers I have, but I grasp with the unseen. In one word, what am I? Ah yes, essential in all hard-boiled detective stories, the robot that asks riddles. Red I am, the heart of a scorpion, yet not of arachnia at all. Pincers I have, but I grasp with the unseen. In one word, what am I? So a choice of three letters of the alphabet. Oh, that's a that's a cruel trick, isn't it? Not giving you a choice of three answers, just giving you a choice of three letters. Oh, cruel. Cruel, I say. Anyway, I'm going to have a think. After a certain amount of head-scratching, I think the answer to the riddle is probably ant. And one of the options, one of the three options is a letter A, so that's what I'm going to settle on. Because you have red ants, don't you? And uh, they have pincers. I'm not quite sure what grasp with the unseen means, but uh, I mean, they're not arachnids, are they? No, 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 they're not. Antares, you answer. The machine lowers itself to the floor and says, just before shutting itself down, correct pass. Okay, I've just looked up Antares, and that does also make sense. Um, more sense, in fact. So Antares being a star, which is sometimes called Scorpion and is a red giant. Um, yeah, yeah, that is surreal. And got to the wrong answer, which turned out to be sort of the right answer. I mean, maybe there's a clue earlier that, uh, by the way, the security system is a robot asking riddles about notable stars. So bone up on your star knowledge. Yeah, I feel like a security system that, that privileges astrophysicists being able to hack it. It's maybe got a bit of a hole in it somewhere. Still, never mind, we've, by more luck than judgment, we've made it through. Leaving the room by another corridor, you come to a T-junction. To the left and right, the corridor splits and heads into dim yellow light before turning from view. Do you want to go left or right? Well, it's a straight-up choice. I guess we went left the first time, we'll go right this time. The corridor ends fairly shortly in a large control panel. The only thing on it which makes any sense is a digital readout. Next shuttle due 75 hours, 31 minutes, 20 seconds. You turn back to the T-junction and follow the other passage. I really am regretting saying that I was going to indicate the capital letters via tone of voice at this point. It's probably equally wearing for you, I imagine. But hey-ho, that's the compact I made with myself and I'm going to stick to it. In the future, apparently, there's a terrible shortage of lowercase letters. The corridor leads to a door. It has a brass plate attached to it. Zera Gross! The door opens as you approach, and there, in a room behind a large desk, dictating to a little robot secretary. There she is. Fat, 
gap-toothed and horrible. It's a bit mean. I suppose it's her then that's supposed to be depicted on the front cover. In my defence, it is a very androgynous sort of figure. But yes, it's a bit mean. I mean, she's almost certainly horrible, but there's no point body shaming her on top of drug deal shaming her. Yeah, she says, not looking at you, obviously thinking you're one of her henchmen. What do you want? Yeah, repeats the secretary, scribbling frantically. What do you want? Shut up, dummy, she shrieks at it. I'm speaking to... She notices who you are. Him. She makes a dive for a blaster on top of the desk. Will you engage her in a gunfight or hand-to-hand combat? I'm going to do a gunfight because that's one of the USPs of this book. So, pew, pew, pew. That's how we're going to settle this. You fire at each other. She's got a skill of eight and a stamina of 11. I am going to roll some dice. I have defeated Zero Gross, and she dealt me four points of damage with her blaster, making that the first injury I've actually suffered so far this adventure, which is pretty good going at a, over an hour in. Zero is immobile. The Viddy Link is on fire. The desk is riddled with bullets. Looking around, you find nothing of note within the room. What happened to the secretary? That's a bit of a loose end that's been left dangling. You leave the room via another door and find yourself in what is obviously a command room. Huge Viddy screens and floor-to-ceiling computer banks adorn the walls. There is a picture, once again. It's some keyboards and some screens and some faintly shiny-looking walls. Not really stretching himself, the artist with this. Viddy links are set around at irregular intervals. It all ticks over and flashes quietly to itself. The screens show production figures of Satterfield D in tons per month, arrival and departure times of helijet flights between the island and the mainland, and the exact location of the asteroid on which all the drugs are manufactured. This is obviously not the complete operation. What you need to do now is take out the production asteroid. So, uh, yeah, well, that was a very successful bit of infiltration and quite a few murders. I feel like we're closing in on the, uh, the end game here. You return to the mainland and then rocket out to the asteroid belt. If your own spacecraft has been destroyed, you will have to hire another at a cost of 2,000 kopecks. If you cannot afford this, then you have failed. Well, that's pretty sweet, I would say. Also, that suggests there's some kind of exciting thing that can happen where your uh, your spaceship gets destroyed. When you approach the environs of the drug runner's asteroid, there's the author again with that brilliant grasp of uh, the vernacular of hard-boiled detective stories. The command screen on your ship flashes a message. Minefield surrounding target! You look out to see a thickly clustered globular minefield set around the production asteroid. A very tricky proposition. You want to shoot your way through the mines or carefully manoeuvre through instead? Um, thing is, I was playing video games earlier and I know full well that careful manoeuvring is not my forte. So I am going to shoot my way through the mines. You sight up on one of the mines, a flat disc-shaped piece of potential energy just waiting to blow you to atoms and let fire with your phasers. The mine explodes far more violently than you expected. The impact hitting your ship even from the supposedly safe distance you chose to fire from. You lose one shield. Okay, down to nine shields. Should be plenty, I feel. Fortunately, though, thanks to the defender's incompetence in laying out their minefield, the mine has set off a chain reaction through the rest of the field. They all explode, giving you a clear passage through to the asteroid. 
The asteroid is covered with batteries of phasers, and having been alerted to your presence by your passage through the minefield, is using them in an attempt to deprive you of your life. Another weird turn of phrase. You will have to fight these outer defences before attempting to land. If you have any smart missiles left, you may launch them. For each smart missile deployed, the asteroid will lose two shields. Kind of suggesting that I'm not going to need the smart missiles at any future point. So, I've uh, got asteroid defences with a weapon strength of nine and six shields. So yeah, we'll use both of the smart missiles to reduce that to four. Oh, no, no, two shields. Two shields remaining, and I'm going to roll some dice. I have blasted the asteroid defences apart, losing one shield from the saucy actuary. In the meantime, uh, so that reduces it to eight shields. I can either dock at the main entrance of the asteroid, or one of the few emergency airlocks set into the asteroid's surface. Let's go for the path less travelled, since I imagine the uh, the main entrance will be crawling with goons of one sort or another. The surface of the asteroid is pockmarked and glowing from your assault. You bring your spacecraft down and spacewalk across to the airlock. Once through it, you find yourself at the end of a long zero-gravity tunnel heading into the bowels of the asteroid. Floating down it, you come across an airtight security door set in one of the walls. It is unmarked. Will you continue down the tunnel or go through the door? Uh, door, please. Behind the door is a room full of pressure suits and emergency air tents. There is nothing of use inside the asteroid, only out of it. You leave the room and go back down the tunnel. The tunnel ends in a large cylindrical chamber. Floating in front of you, blocking your passage, is a device constructed of four cubes set in the shape of an X with a cubic hole in the centre. Bright blue bolts of electricity fly between the cubes through the central hole. With a low hum, it begins to approach. The flashing becomes more frequent and begins to lash out towards you in great electric arcs. There is a picture, because this is an illustrator who's only too happy to have the option to just do a few straight lines and call it a day. I mean, it's four cubes. It, it's four cubes in an X shape with some not particularly convincing looking lightning. Yeah, definitely took the easy route here, I think. So we have a choice of approaches. Blast it, try and dive past it, or take a flying leap at it to hit it with one of my boots, thus hopefully sending it out of control. I mean, I love the idea of doing a kind of flying karate style kick to this robotic security system and that in any way, shape or form working. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. Roll two dice and test your skill. I get a five, which is less than my skill of ten. So the sentinel spins out of control and dashes itself to pieces against the wall of the chamber. When it has finally stopped sparking, you move past it towards the exit. I'm going to get out on a limb and say that security is less good in the future than it is in the present. I feel as though a uh, security device that's... Uh, Absolutely fine, unless someone gives it a push, is, is maybe not the best security device ever. The exit leads you down another zero-gravity tunnel to a crossroads. You have three tunnels to choose from, straight ahead, left or right. Well, we haven't had an opportunity to go straight ahead, so that's what we're going to do. First, go straight on at 1 hour 15 minutes of recording time. Wow. The tunnel ends in an enormous rough-hewn cavern. 
Through the centre of this cavern, in a line heading to the exit on the other side, hang three metallic spheres, each adorned with what seem to be large, loop-shaped handles. The rest of the cavern is filled with bulbous creatures, devoid of eyes or other sensory organs, bar a set of long tentacles, with which they constantly search the zero-gravity space around themselves. Will you reach the other side from jumping from sphere to sphere, or by wending your way through those bulbous creatures? So uh, you may be unsurprised to know that uh, the law of being able to just draw three big circles filling most of the frame was too much for this artist. And he has indeed done a picture that focuses very, very heavily on the three spheres. Wherever there's a geometric shape, he's, he's really, really happy to be there. He's got his, he's got his protractor. He's got his ruler. He's, he's raring to go. There are, to be fair to him, a few tentacles visible, but it's not something he's clearly spent a lot of time on. So, um, I guess we jump from sphere to sphere. Test the skill again. Eight. Absolutely fine. I wonder if any of these are insta-kills, if you make a mess of them. You make it to the first sphere and jump for the next. Roll two dice under your skill. Yep, made the second one as well. You make it to the second sphere and jump for the next. So one last test of skill. I really do feel like I'm due to come a cropper. I'm going to do these dice one at a time to try and inject a sense of jeopardy. Five. That's not good. So a five or a six on this second dice and I am boned. So I get a six. That's 11. So uh, the result is higher than my skill. The result is higher or equal to my skill. So I do, in fact, as I predicted, come a cropper. Some people say I lack a positive mental attitude, and uh, in all honesty, they're, they're right. You go off target and hit a couple of tentacles from a pair of the bulbous creatures. They open their tremendous tooth-filled maws and attack wildly, biting you. Lose four points of stamina. So, stamina now down to 16. I guess I could eat an energy tablet, which gets me to 22. Ah, uh, the future when... Pounding a couple of pro plus is the only sensible thing to do after receiving a sucking gut wound. You make it to the third sphere. From here, you can easily make it to the other exit. Going through it, you find yourself in a large chemical laboratory. Stainless steel and glass apparatus rise on all sides. This must be the factory proper. Here is where most of the Federation's illegal Satofil D comes from. There is nobody about, so you busy yourself destroying some of the equipment. While doing this, you notice two exits from the room, a door and a corridor, which will you take? So we can add property damage to the list of uh, things I can apparently uh, do with impunity. And uh, yes, again, the opportunity to draw some pipes and flat surfaces and not have to do any shading tempted the artist into doing a depiction of this room. And it is, it is so unbelievably half-baked. It's really just some curvy lines and some straight lines, apparently almost at random. Still, uh, we've got a door and a corridor. Uh, let's take the door, because in my experience, interesting things are often behind doors. You enter a room which has gravity. Before you is a wide, deep-set pit, spanned by a narrow bridge with no handrail. On the bridge stands a tripedal alien holding electric braces in each of its three paws. It is considering you with its three eyes. Thankfully, it has only one mouth, albeit a very large one. Horrible, it says, and then, without waiting to see if you do, fires several bright bolts of electrons at you. Do you have any Satterfield D? 
I do not. There is a picture, and after ragging on the artist considerably about his love of depicting things that can be done in a few straight lines very quickly, he has actually turned in a pretty decent, pretty decent uh, depiction of this grotty-looking alien. So, uh, I mean, it looks like what you'd expect, a sort of a Mr. Potato Head that's been abused as a child and had additional limbs grafted to it by some careless deity. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really decent job. Looks suitably icky. Let's find out what happens with a lack of drugs. You fire at each other. So the Arcturian Vanque, or Vank, I'm going to go Vanque. Yeah, Arcturian Vanque has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 10. So let's see if I can blast him to pieces. Or her. Or it. Whichever pronoun is appropriate, I'm going to shoot it repeatedly until it lies down and dies. I'm going to roll some dice. I have shot the Arcturian Vanque repeatedly, and I suffered uh, four points of damage, taking me down to 18. So more paracetamol, and we'll go back to 24. So I've still got six energy tablets remaining me, which is nice. With the alien vanquished, you cross the bridge and go down the exit corridor, coming shortly to a T-junction. Will you go left or right? I feel like it's left's turn. The corridor leads you to a tiny cubic room with doors on all of its surfaces. Each door is a bright shade of red with a little black button set in the centre. Hmm, very intriguing. Which door button will you press? Front, back, left, right, down or up? I have literally no idea. One, two, three, I've got six choices. I could just roll a dice for it, couldn't I? The coward's way out. No, no, I'm going to make a choice. We'll go, we'll go back. You receive an electric shock from the door. It does not open. Lose one point of stamina and then return. Okay. So back we've done. Let's try down. You receive an electric shock from the door. It does not open. Lose one point of stamina and then return. Uh, go left. You receive an electric shock from the door. It does not open. Lose one point of stamina then return. So... Getting down to the, uh, the, the nitty-gritty of it, um, let's go up. The door opens into an identically cubic room. That's upsetting. Okay, so we've got another six door buttons. Okay, we'll try up again. A bright flash of electrons surges out of the button, engulfing your arm. The door does not open. Needs a point of stamina. So this one we've done up. Uh, we'll go front. A small poison dart fired from a minuscule opening in the corner hits you. The door does not open. Lose one point of stamina. It's nice that the uh, the author's varying it up a bit. I appreciate that. This is already making for quite tedious podcasting, I suspect. So we've done up and front this time. My old pal left. Let's try left. The door opens on a sumptuous living area. I wonder if there's a clue at any point as to how to get through that. Again, weirdly rudimentary security device. The door opens onto a sumptuous living area, carpets, modern furniture and diffused light. There is even a trendy folding screen decorated with off-world scenery next to the door. In a wall opposite the door you are standing in is a wide corridor leading to another similarly decorated room. In this corridor stand two identical figures, which must be Blaster Babbitt. Tucked under each left arm is an enormous Vanquay Blaster. Good evening! They say together, time to die, Fed. Do you want to blast the left figure 
or the right figure or try and think of an alternative course of action. Now there is a picture, again, pretty good. It's not like the guy can't draw, it's more that he just prefers not to, which is, uh, yeah, an interesting choice for a professional illustrator. But uh, I wonder whether there's a kind of spot the difference thing we can do with these two very, very similar depictions of Blaster Babbitt. He looks a bit like Travis out of Blake 7. There's a reference designed to absolutely date me. Nothing's leaping out at me as hinting this is the real guy. They are they are functionally identical. So, alternative course of action. Well, I have no equipment other than money. So, I don't feel... I feel as though rummaging in the backpack is not going to be a solution. I'm just going to shoot the left figure. Okay, this is neat. The figure smashes into a thousand pieces when you shoot it. The other Babbitt laughs, turns to the left and opens fire, enigmatically away from you. To your horror, blaster shells come tearing through the folding screen and smash into your body. The figures were reflections. The gangster was hiding behind the screen all along. You sink to the floor, your wounds making an irremovable stain in the plush pile of the carpet. You have failed. For the very last minute, it feels like as well. Well, trust your old pal H.J. Doom to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I don't actually mind because that's a really kind of neat finish. I really like that. You gave me every opportunity not to get shot from behind the screen. So I, I cannot complain about it too much. So that concludes this abortive but lengthy playthrough of The Rings of Kedder. I'm going to be back in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. Well, that was much, much better than Space Assassin. Rings of Kether is, I think, a lot of fun to play through. Not least because the hard-boiled detective vibe is completely different from anything we've seen so far. Your character is a mixture of James Bond and Philip Marlowe, and it's nice that the adventure lets you feel like you're pretty good at your job. Now, that's accomplished by giving you a host of different options for finding the location of the drug processing plant on the island. The section in the city of Kether has a wide variety of routes through it, and all of them feel very appropriate for this kind of story. I went back after the initial recording to explore the various approaches you can take, and I was delighted to discover that you can meet both Zira Gross and Blaster Babbitt in the early stages of the adventure before you encounter them again towards the end. It's also clear that you've arrived at a time of minor crisis for the drug smugglers, and you've become another factor in the chaos, and I really like the aspect of these characters having things they're doing and would be doing even if you weren't there. That's something I really, really enjoy in any kind of interactive medium. As ever, there's a few great set pieces which I'm sad we didn't get to see on this playthrough. There's a well-realised car chase, a tense spacewalk to a satellite. They're both really strong, but ultimately all roads lead to the island, then to the hidden base in the asteroid field. And that means that the early stages feel somewhat more like a choose-your-own-adventure book than a fighting fantasy game book. There's many different paths to success rather than the uh, one true path beloved of Ian Livingstone and his ilk. The multiple possible paths mean that necessarily the book is much less reliant on inventory items than the usual fighting fantasy story. Uh, because there's so many different ways, you can't guarantee that characters are going to get the items that they need. 
and that means that the difficulty is also commensurately lower. With many paths to success, you run the risk of making the game feel a little too easy, but honestly that makes a nice change of pace, so I'm not going to come down too hard on it for that. There's certainly plenty of moments where you can come a cropper, but it's often going to be due to the dice rather than decision making. It's nice that my usual technique of making terrible life choices and blundering hopelessly about got me almost to the very end of this one. And it does a really good job, especially in the early stages, of presenting you with a series of choices that feel meaningful. It's not just picking between left and right, it's choosing between which leads you want to follow and how you want to approach them. A lot of the time, a sensible approach is relatively easy to puzzle out, but it all feels nicely consequential. Even if, in reality, the gamebook is pretty determined you're going to find your way to that island by hook or by crook. And it's the opposite of many books where choosing left over right winds up meaning you miss something vital or simply die arbitrarily. As always, I think there's probably a middle ground that feels more satisfying than going to either extreme. And with the difficulty fairly low, you won't necessarily get to play through the early game repeatedly in order to enjoy that branching path and all those different options. Now, later, we do get more binary options where you encounter a more traditionally structured dungeon with puzzles and traps, but even then it feels fairly generous. I think the final sections are the weakest of the adventure. It's done such a good job of integrating space travel and a theoretically vast setting of a planet, its moon and the asteroid belt, but when it comes to the final assault on the drug manufacturing plant, the author winds up falling back on the traditional dungeon tropes and then giving them a science fiction makeover. There's stuff you can get away with in a fantasy setting, even if it doesn't make any sense when you think about it, especially when it comes to security. So we can buy the idea of a pixie with a riddle representing the apogee of magical security, or that an exploding treasure chest is a perfectly sensible thing to store in your dining room. But when you do the same thing in space, it tends to ring hollow. I mean, I'd love to go to the futuristic trade shows where salesmen try and get large banking groups to invest in a series of die-shaped rooms covered in electroshock buzzers, or extol the riddling prowess of their latest killbot. That that just strikes me as a ridiculous thing. And it's the sort of thing you might be able to get away with in something with a more retro pulp Flash Gordon vibe, something more in the kind of planetary romance, something closer effectively to a fantasy story. But it sits very awkwardly with the more grounded approach of Rings of Kether. Now that grounded approach and the hard-boiled detective and espionage tropes that inform it raise some interesting questions, I think, about the morality depicted within the fiction. I spoke about this during the playthrough, but I think it places the book very squarely in an earlier epoch where drugs are simply bad by virtue of being drugs, and law enforcement is permitted extreme latitude in their approach to fighting the war on drugs because that is just a good thing for people to do. Now, I think in 2021, when many places have successfully decriminalised less dangerous narcotics and taken an approach that's more focused on drug use as a public health issue, that seems quite dated. And I think we're also being asked to consider, particularly at the moment, the role of law enforcement in perpetuating inequality. So the notion that an undercover agent can act as both investigator, prosecutor, and indeed executioner, that feels more problematic in the era we're now in. The bad guys here are clearly monsters, and they'll stop at nothing to continue 
their illicit trade. They are unarguably baddies, so it's not as bad as it might be. Uh, these are terrible people that you're dealing with, but there's also some much more minor characters who you kind of treat pretty shoddily uh, without there being any kind of consequence to that. And those troubling elements that I alluded to, they're never addressed in the story any more than the trope of Zero Gross being ugly externally and therefore obviously ugly internally is addressed. That is a particularly pernicious trope, I think, that we equate physical attractiveness with moral probity. Now, you could argue that analysing the politics of a throwaway game book aimed at children is a bit unnecessary, but I would say everything has a political agenda. And even if you're trying to avoid having an explicitly political agenda, that usually means that you're tacitly in favour of the status quo, and often it means that you're benefiting from the status quo. Despite some problematic elements, I definitely had a good time with The Rings of Kether. It managed to break the streak of terrible futuristic science fiction game books and completely redeems the author of Space Assassin in my eyes. It's just lovely to realise that he's got decent writing and design skills after all. Before I go, there is some housekeeping to attend to. First, a reminder that you can, should you choose, support my work on patreon.com slash hjdoom. This podcast is a labour of love, and chucking me a few coins to support the creation is always much appreciated. It's thanks to a few people donating that I can make bonus episodes fairly regularly. Which brings me on to the second bit of housekeeping. I took delivery of a whole bunch of exciting game books kindly sent to me by Rich de Valmont. Rich is my co-host on the horror podcast we do together called Bella Lugosi's Shed. And if you're enjoying what I do, you could do a lot worse than give it a listen. We cover all kinds of horror and we've just finished a fascinating deep dive into the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise at the time of recording. What his largesse means is that there should be a few bonus episodes coming in the next couple of months. And I hope you'll tune in for those because there's some great and really obscure stuff coming up. Some real hidden gems, I'm hoping, and uh, I'll be aiming to get uh, the first one of those out in the next couple of weeks. Until then, thanks very much for listening, and take care.